we didn't come from a line of brain-eating apes necessarily, but I mean, there's 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 a lot of truth there. Welcome to episode 10 of the Who Cares Anyway podcast. My guest on this episode is Peter Conheim. Now, some of you may remember an old BASF slogan from the 1980s and 90s, and maybe it's still current, but it went something like this. At BASF, we don't make a lot of the products you buy. We make a lot of the products you buy better. And that slogan came to mind as I was talking to Peter Conheim and sort of taking stock of the many projects that he has been involved in and lent his talents to over the years. And to name just a few that we actually do touch on in this interview, those include his film restoration work with the Cinema Preservation Alliance, his audio restoration and production work, including a recent archival release of The Mutants called Curse of the Easily Amused, a band that he also performs in as bassist in their current live incarnation, and then Negative Land, which he joined in the mid-90s and was a member of for a couple of decades. But in addition to making other records and bands and films better, Peter has also led several endeavors of his own, including Monopause, which he co-founded with Mark Jurgis in the early 90s and carried into the 2000s. Uh, they eventually morphed into Noingfok, their Southeast Asian pop alter ego, and then the Electromotive label, which uh, Peter founded in, I believe, 1990. And that focuses on a particular uh, group of bands that I don't get into in the book. And to be honest, I'm still not terribly knowledgeable about, to put it politely. And that, in turn, is a big reason why I wanted to have Peter on as a guest. In other words, his involvement with lots of things that were adjacent to, but just outside the scope of what I was able to include in the book, with monopause, in my mind, coming after the time period discussed in the book, although, as we'll hear, they were actually founded, you know, 1992, so kind of at the tail end. But then also that Oakland warehouse scene that we do talk about in the interview, I was focusing more on San Francisco with occasional detours into the East Bay, but there is a story to be told about the East Bay that perhaps someone out there is working on or will decide to work on. A couple of clarifications. At one point, I refer to eyes, ears, and throats. The correct title is actually Ears, Eyes, and Throats. But that is a collection of short films that Peter uh, restored and compiled that was very helpful to me in my research on the book, in particular uh, Deaf Punk and In the Red, uh, both of which were shown at the book release event in San Francisco back in March. And then there is a reference to a Lexa, and that is Lexa Walsh, from the Afterworld Lounge slash Heinz Club. And again, I'll have to admit, I'm not terribly clear on the chronology, but Peter talks a little bit about that venue and its connection to the Oakland scene that we discussed sort of in the first part of the interview. And then finally, as for the very beginning of the interview, well, the official backstory behind Monopause is that they formed in Wisconsin. River Falls, Wisconsin, and I took that at face value, and that accounts for the somewhat uh, sputtering start to the interview. I asked him about moving from Wisconsin, and uh, yeah, 
So with all that out of the way, I'll go ahead and step aside and let us get on with the interview with Peter Conheim. The whole thing is the whole thing is fake. Oh God! Well, see here. How about this? <laughs> there was no River Falls, Wisconsin involvement with monopause. That was me and Mark's. Uh, okay. You know, ruse. But uh, originally, we were real. You know, we were talking like this. Well, back there in River Falls, you know, that's where we were from. That was actually part of our stick. Okay. Well, because you know, it would not have been out of the realm of of uh, what would be realistic. I mean, you had uh, all kinds of of groups of say the Thinking Fellers coming from Iowa, kind of coming out on mass, or you had other groups coming from uh, upstate New York, or, or maybe groups of people, if not actual bands. I mean, MX MX eighty Sound, who I've been working with for you know, well, I've known Dale since I was ten years old, and like he's one of my oldest friends. MX eighty Sound is from Bloomington, and they moved to San Francisco in seventy seven or eight to uh, you know just try to, to try to take it more seriously. So yeah, I mean, it's it, it, it's there's, there's there's a precedent. So when did are you a Barry a native then? More or less. I mean, I was I was born in New York. My whole family's from New York on both sides, but I moved here in 1970 when I was two. So I am effectively a, a, a Berkeley native, effectively speaking. Okay, okay. Well, here here I was thinking that, that there was a sort of period in which you, you arrived. I would say a minority of people, let's say I interviewed 110 people uh, I get for over the course of the book and, you know, it would be, I'm sure it's less than 50%, probably less than a third who were actually from the Bay area. Oh, absolutely. People. I, yeah. My girlfriend is, is born and raised here and she's one of the few people I have known who was even through my childhood, you know, whatever people, my best friend, Anthony, who I started the record label with electromotive, he's from, uh, Indiana. He's from, not, is it Bloomington? I can't remember. Uh, no, but, but, yeah, I mean, it, very few of us are natives. When can we say that there was a certain point at which monopause formed? Yeah, I mean, you know, the, the 1992 was when I met Mark and when we started, um, and it was just a duo. Um, the first year, year and a half, we didn't perform; we just recorded. And then our first gig was in uh, 1993. Uh, when so let's see, if you came in '99. You missed, geez, you missed the Heinz Club, which became, which was known as the Afterworld Lounge. Yeah, the Heinz Club was really important, you know, to that whole, just to the East Bay scene. You know, it was huge. And it was, it was the center in a lot of ways. It was the only center in the East Bay, really. And then it, and it, and it eventually, Lexa managed to get touring acts to come through too. Like, so it would be a, a national stop. And so the Heinz Club on Grand, and then when she got, they got suddenly just blocked her out and closed the doors. She moved the operation to Larry Blake's in Berkeley, and that was like Afterward Lounge Part Two. And Monopause's first show was the last night of, I believe it was the last night. If I have my history right, God, I can't believe I've forgotten this. It was a significant event, um, but yeah, it was Little My Fibulator and us. I'm pretty sure it was the, how she closed Afterward Lounge. It was either the first show or the last show. <laughs> I can't remember. Okay. Wow. The, the venue that I remember uh, going to uh, in, let's see, I don't have a good visual, I don't have a good sense of direction in Oakland. I just knew BART mm -hmm. stops and, and stuff, but uh, was Hecko's, was that? 
Oh, on on, per, on Peralta near the near Seventh Street. Yeah. Well, that was just that was our our, our sax and and general mayhem players uh, loft, and we would do secret shows there. Yeah. Right. So I, yeah, I saw at least a couple of shows of touring bands coming through there. Uh, yeah, he had he, he got a few things to happen from touring. Like Wolf Eyes played there. Um, this amazing Japanese band that only ever came here once. I forget what they're called now, but they have a very strange name. They came. Um, yeah, I think he always played there, I think twice, maybe three times once with us. Um, oh, yeah. I mean, it was a great spot. And it, but, you know, it's funny. I've, I just have to say I've looked back. A lot of us have, have looked back on that era since the ghost ship fire and realized like that was as dumb or dumber place to do to cram people than the ghost ship it also had one way in and one way out but unlike the ghost ship hecko had nailed all the windows shut he had boarded up all the windows for sound so it was unbelievably unsafe and and i remember one gig where he did a pyrotechnics like magic show of sorts just hecko himself and i remember flame like going up to the ceiling and almost lighting the ceiling on fire i mean it was completely insane and then when the thinking fellers and us played there in 94 or 93 the floor almost caved in the floor was like everyone was dancing so much and there was already the floor was buckling so then when he did the next show he convinced the owners of the store downstairs to let him put an i-beam up to like oh wow either an i-beam it couldn't have been an i-beam i-beams go this way but it was like he put up like a post so that the floor wouldn't fall in i mean I can't believe we did this shit. You know, I can't fucking believe it. And I and I two I knew two people that died at the ghost ship. And like, you know, it just one was a friend. And I, I just can't I can't believe we did it, frankly. Did you find that uh let's say between ninety-five and, and two thousand, say that things were more happening or more at least more hospitable over in Oakland, or was that Yeah, I think I think for sure, but at the same time there were still a couple of clubs that were um going strong in the city that were basically doing the same thing as like Lexa was doing um was 95 is that that yeah like the night break uh which was also called the thirsty swede uh, on on, okay. on on hate um you know there were a few but yeah generally speaking yeah I think there was more going on and there was more and it's true there was an exodus of people when the rents started to go completely insane 95 ish I think that's about right because I remember I was dating a woman in 94 and she was having a really hard time finding a place in san francisco at the time and then it became like she got one just in time and then it became impossible so yeah i mean but the west oakland thing has its own interesting history because and I, i'm assuming you don't get into this in the book because it's so fucking obscure but i i think it's really amazing and kind of forgotten is that that corridor where Hecko's place was for like a block and a half the basically was that block and then a little bit to the east um that section from about 80 89 90 all the way up to well it, i guess it didn't last that long let's call it 95 six 95 96 there were so many bands living in that two square block radius and so many rehearsal spaces that you could basically walk down 7th street and hear a different band coming out it was like a really amazing moment there was a down the downstairs from hecko's before there was a store there was a rehearsal space 
down the block uh, on the corner near the corner. There was a thing called the Railroad Lounge. It was pretty short lived. Saw some amazing shows there. There was always something going on right right in that time. And that was when the crime also was really like the, the person on person crime was really bad. Everybody got mugged. There were a lot of drug deaths and like not well, there was actually at least one, but I mean, drug um, like there was a shootout at, at the liquor store down the block, you know, and like bad shit happened. Um, I remember Jeff coming, Jeff coming into rehearsal, like ashen face. He's like, I just saw a guy get shot in his in his car. And all these people were on the street going, they shot shitty. Shitty got shot. <laughs> well, I remember that. I don't know. But um, that stretch was so such a fertile in the early 90s, early 90s. That was like there were just yeah, there were like 10 bands that lived right there, including us. And so yeah, that was it didn't last, but for that couple of years, it was really dynamic. It was crazy. I mean, Lex's, Lex's house, Lex's house is at the corner of 7th and Peralta. Across the street was Hecko's place. And then, yeah, and then we were next door to he- to, to uh, Lexa. Our, our space was right there. That's where Mark lived. So, but that's, that's only a little. I mean, there was so much more before that. Yeah. Who were some of the other bands? Uh... Well, Fibulator, uh, Dentriptych, Little Mai, all rehearsed right there. Don't think the Thinking Fellers ever had a space there, but I mean later Rick, I mean uh, Anne married Rick from Dentriptych, and they lived around the corner. But I guess Thinking Fellers are kind of inactive then. Yeah, I mean those are the bands I remember, but there were more. Um, there were more. I remember that Ken from Fibulator. I think he did like the first East Bay, maybe the only East Bay show of uh, World of Pooh, Barbara Manning's band with Jay right. Padgett and uh, Brandon Kearney. I think that was at Lexa's house in 1990, 89, 90, 91, like in there. Yeah, 80, uh, yeah, probably 89, 90, 91, which is when Fibulator was starting up. Yeah, and that's when I started to hang around down there. Oh, and there was also, God, I mean, Jesus Christ, I can't believ
and the building started to decay. And one night it literally collapsed on itself. I Mark called me and like, I heard this huge bang and this cloud of dust and the no theater is a pile of rubble. <laughs> <laughs> so that's how fucking unsafe that was, you know? I have to thank you for uh, eyes, ears, and throat. Those were amazing, uh, Def Punk. And then I also want to ask about in the the red. But yeah. how, how did you come to be involved in in those? And what was the what was the status of the uh, of the film? If for De say Def Punk, because it's it's there was only like uh, like eight to ten minutes. But I don't know if there was yeah. other footage or uh, that probably there might have been some. But yeah, that's a that's a mysterious situation because the the filmmaker Gajkowski, Richard Gajkowski, is is dead. The negative is gone. The only copies of the film that exist are a handful of prints in 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 uh, one in private hands, who I, which I couldn't get access to, and one that Gajkowski's like estate, as it were, had donated to the PFA, and that's where I, that's the one I used for the restoration. Um, the the understanding I have of that film is that Gajkowski didn't film that material. It was filmed by another filmmaker who either couldn't come up with anything or just didn't know what to do with it and handed it off to Richard and Richard edited that incredible collage that we see now. And, and I am not clear whether like the slow motion, which is like so fantastic. If you remember when the offs are playing and people are like dancing up and down, it's like a crazy ballet. I don't know if that was done by the filmmaker in the camera or if that was done by Gajkowski in the lab. I would like to believe that it was done by Gajkowski in the lab as like a aesthetic choice because it's so beautiful. Um, but the only other film I've seen of his is the one that is in that compilation, which is uh, um, Moody Teenager. And that's that's pretty different. So, yeah, it, it's he's just he's an enigma. He was an enigma. You know, he, he had a um, he distributed films. He distributed like other people's films too for a short time you know he was just sort of like another bay area underground filmmaker but he cranked out a couple of these things and yeah and i saw it at the pfa in its original sort of preservation print version that they had done and i was so blown away like i became obsessed with the film even though it's only like seven minutes like you say just i was i i really wanted to restore it again and do it a little bit better and it was a years-long odyssey to be able to do that the whole ears eyes throats uh, comp was my curating because I basically at the time I still am but at the time uh, ref and, and I were doing this um, this website of a new restored film every month so I was basically cranking out a feature film restoration every fucking month for a year and a half it was completely insane nobody should ever do that and I pitched the idea of a punk rock series to him and I was like, I know where some of this material is. I think this would make a good chapter in our online magazine. And so that's why it happened. Um, also, I had been horrified. I hope this isn't too much of a digression, but I'd been horrified by oh. what I saw in the residence documentary, um, The Ice Scream. Is that what it was called? Okay. It's pretty good. That sounds right. Okay. But anyway, what I was, I was horrified by the quality of the clips from their films that were so awful. And I thought like, wait a minute, I know 
these could look better because I know where the negatives are. They're on there. Hardy gave them to the PFA. I, you know, why isn't this done? So I just reached out to Homer and I said, man, this is a disaster. Somebody's got to do something. He's like, well, sure. If you want to go right ahead. So he basically gave me free, free reign and free access. And I, I, I borrowed the negatives and I created those new versions. Um, uh, so yeah, that was all just because I couldn't stand having them in the, in the public consciousness looking that way. Like they just needed to look better. Like I had seen them look better, you know, in past decades and thought like, this is not the way the public needs to know these movies. Um, so yeah, that's kind of how that whole thing came together. And I also, I became Devo's sort of, def, I, I don't know, side hustle archivist. So I made friends with, with them years ago. And then, because they came to me for something and then I just started plundering their vaults and doing all this work. And I did the same thing. I was like, why, why are these versions of your seminal films so awful? You know, let's do something about it. And so I raised a little money and I did those two Devo films and I've got more in the can now too, that I'm not sure what we're going to do with. And so with all those things in oh, and, and in the red was an obsession for 20 years. Had to have been for 20 years. Was that uh so under red under red was filmed in 1978 and i quoted right. a couple of bits from that because it's the only say uh the the only footage of uh say there, i quoted from will shatter uh not the mm -hmm. only footage of him but uh d, d detroit talking about michael kowalski mm -hmm. um, there are these and uh she's alive but not really reachable and so uh, no no uh, she does not want to yeah, she does not want right. that involvement no right right and so that that was um that was gold because i was already let's say it was 2018 2019 when i came across that i was already well into this but it connected so many dots or it was the first oh, great. That era in particular though. I mean, the footage that exists is so rare. Even the audio recordings are rare, but the video recordings are just like, uh, you just get these very little glimpses. And so, uh, cause I wasn't there. And so I have this, you know, mental picture, but then it gets filtered through these short films of, you know, the deaf, that's my only video footage I've seen of, of the inside of the deaf club. It's the only footage that exists as far as I know there. Yeah, there isn't. There was never any video shot there. Just that film and and still pictures. Right. So it was was in the red. Um, was that finished? And did that ever? No. Was that ever screened at the time that that was I, left unfinished? I can't say that it wasn't screened, but it couldn't have been shown much. And I, I mean, I only know it because I used to work with Liz at the Exploratorium in the mid 1990s, Liz Kime, who co-directed it. Okay. And she just mentioned it to me one day and I'm like, what, what are you talking about? And she gives me a shitty video transfer of it. It blew my head off. And from that point forward, like I want to say 95, six, I was like, Liz, you, we have to do something. And then I wasn't restoring film then. So I didn't have the mechanism, but back then I was like, something's got to happen with this movie. And then I was digging around in the exploratorium storage and I found her original negatives and all her tapes, like in a, in a moldy canvas bag. Like I'm like, Liz, you know, and it took years and years, but I was the person that basically rediscovered and championed that film without tooting my own horn. It's just the truth. I turned Craig onto it and he had Liz come Baldwin and she he she showed it at other cinema again pre-restoration so it had been shown then it had been shown at the Roxy in a um like a punk club um uh, collection but again pre-restoration just from a really bad videotape terrible color terrible sound um 
that was it, I think. I mean, because they never finished it. And I don't think it was because they didn't want to. I think they just ran out of steam. You know, I, I, that's the impression that Liz gives me. It's like they, they never quite got it in the state they wanted. And then they went on with their lives. You know, they were young and they were students and then they wound up getting into jobs and Liz threw herself into the exploratorium and she's been there for like 40 years. And so it just, it just never happened, you know? Um, so the reason why it just kind of ends is because it just kind of ends. There's just, there isn't really an ending, you know, it, I don't, I don't think that was their ending. Um, but the edit you see is the way they edited it. I was wondering if, if you could verify this story, because I swear I read this, but then I could not remember where I read it and therefore couldn't cite it. But the Mutant 7 Inch on 415 is three mm -hmm. songs, and uh, I think it's 33 RPM on one side and 45 RPM on the other. Maybe uh, I have it up to check. Yeah, and but I read. I think this was from from Fritz saying that he hit a plosive at one point on one of the songs, and that that was causing problems with the mastering. So they had to lower the volume so that it wouldn't cause the record to to skip. Did that sound familiar at all? It yeah, was that's basic. That's basically right. I mean, that it was it was not a great master. I'm sure somebody could have done a little bit more surgical job if they'd have had the money or the time even then to probably duck that plosive. But yeah, that's right. The whole thing was was pretty quiet. Um, lacked a certain amount of balls. It wasn't awful, but yes, that's right. That's right. And that tape was missing forever and then suddenly right not long before he tragically died uh, paul the bass player of the mutants who wasn't even on that session um but he's the guy i replaced he found that tape in his storage space the the multi-track and so that's i went back to it and made a new mix and that's what's on uh, curse of the easily amused or the, the two songs from are there two i can't just, remember just one just one just oh, I've lounge, yeah i was wondering why why uh why the other two, the, the two new songs, uh, New Drug and New Dark Ages, didn't make it on it's, there? It's because we were trying to go for unreleased material, primarily. And also, we okay. want to save stuff for the next release, you know? Um, oh, we have, okay. Oh, we have plans. We have plans. Yes, yes. Before this CD came out, my perspective was that that, that was the best record of the mutants and then the live tracks on the deaf club compilation were good but i think well, they, I, I i love that album. You, you did okay yeah I, I felt like i mean it's a different era and i i felt like the the band i talked to john gullick and sally mm -hmm. and neither one of them seemed particularly thrilled and they had some funny stories about the the process of oh it was a it. clusterfuck of epic yeah yeah they told you yeah mm -hmm. And it was, and it was, it was much later. So anyway, my, my rambling thing here was that it felt like, wow, there's, there must've been a lot more. They're playing, they were, they were playing out regularly from, for five, six years. And they had, they would have had all these songs and people love the mutants, but for a listener prior to this CD, uh, if you wanted to hear them in that late seventies incarnation, you basically had the three songs on the seven inch and the, th the live tracks. And as far as I know, it's less when we're into bootleg, we're able to get bootleg. That was all there was. Well, 
part. Not quite. I don't know if that's accurate. Okay. It's not actually accurate, although I, okay. you know, we would rather kind of forget this even happened. But um, the record, the fun terminal record was re was re-released uh, on the White Noise label on a CD. Oh, yeah, I have that. Yeah. That's got a bunch of stuff that would not a bunch, but some stuff that would later wind up on uh, Curse the Easily Amused. They did this amazing demo in um, Shangri-La Studios in Malibu, which now owned by Rick Rubin, but of course wasn't back then. Uh, think, 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 too much too soon. Um, why am I blanking up? But anyway, all four of those are bonus, they're bonus tracks on that CD. Okay. But, but the thing about that fucking CD is that every single source was a horrible cassette. Like there was no attempt made to deal with the masters. And also the LP master was lost at that time. It was locked away in fantasy because um, their criminal cocaine dealing label wouldn't hadn't paid the bill. So they had to master the CD from a vinyl. They did, they did a fair job, but all that extra stuff on there, including the songs from the seven inch and everything, they're all from terrible sources. And that's why when I did Curse, I insisted that we go do this right and go back to the masters, which I have since relocated, right? So, okay. so in a sense, those, those tracks were out there. I mean, there are unreleased songs too on Curse that definitely have never come out, but there's like six okay. or seven that were on yeah they were on the reissue okay 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 so they were maybe par for the course because certainly uh the the more headline type bands from that era you know mutant sleepers uh ne negative trend avengers you know they weren't really making albums in the late 70s nobody was no. making albums and it took, took until till later uh bands that survived long enough or whether you know the nuns reformed to record an album so it 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 got uh, that that era in San Francisco um, didn't I don't know it's it is kind of this lost thing where there is there is documentation and there was a lot of great stuff happening but it's bits and pieces and I it's think always that's fair. something that yeah yeah that's... takes some takes some digging and, and there's a lot of what if what might have been um, mm -hmm. but a lot of you know growing up for me growing up on the East Coast this was stuff that didn't get reviewed in the record guides because those rec you know those would be primarily focusing on LPs. The stuff was not even close to being in print with very few exceptions when I was buying records in the early 90s, mid 90s. So, um, but, but it doesn't seem to have lost any luster, uh, you know, for, 40 years on. I, I don't well, know. If it's, if it's good, it's gonna hold up, you know? I mean, it's just, if it's good music, it's gonna hold up. So, I mean, but I mean, to that point, there's at least one band that I could think of that was from the original Mab era, which has no documentation whatsoever. I mean, maybe not even photographs. And it's this band called Magister Ludi, which both Penelope and somebody else have talked about as being this like totally like they were nothing like anybody else. Fucked up psych band, really weird, really great. And in the outtakes for Louder, Faster, Shorter, there's a brief silent shot of them playing like it like the camera's on for a second. No sound. That's all you get, okay. you know? Okay. Um, so, I mean, there are a couple of those people. And then who was the guy? He did one single that was so great. The mutants backed him. Um, oh, he's, he was black. Oh, uh, yep, yep, yep. Snooky yep. Tate. Snooky Tate. Snooky Tate. Tate. There's an example, like, where's that master? You know, who knows? Um, yeah, I mean, it's just, yeah. You know, like when we did the No Mercy record, they had a album or EP, I mean, a long EP recorded by uh, Tom Tadlock, and they had the master tape and it just got put in the wrong place and got demagnetized. It was wiped. 
you know so all that was left was was uh cassette copies i believe and that's what we made the record from i mean it's just there's all kinds of shit like that the mutants the mutants seven inch should have come out in 78 but it took till 1980 so they completely blew the momentum on that you know right that's okay that's interesting because i didn't know um you know exactly the recording date there was a review by chris d chris desjardins uh, mm-hmm. uh in uh slash that i quoted from that uh he, he it was a really positive review but right at the point but things were moving so fast moving so quickly uh, that the difference between 1980 and 1978 was, was huge whereas oh, huge. you know I, I think yeah, yeah t- i don't know that uh, uh you know, Time just doesn't pass the same way that it used to in in music, um, but you know, two years now versus two years then, it's uh, it, I don't know. There, there's there's, <laughs> there's something yeah. metaphysical about that. Well, there's uh, that way, there's way more bands and there's way more media. You know, between those two right, things. Yeah. You know, I mean, everything. Everything. My opinion of this is that everything changed in 1993 or whatever when Nirvana hit big. I mean, it's it's just like everything changed. There was no longer. Uh, a kind of like a defined pool of a handful of interesting independent artists or whatever, like suddenly CMJ was just, could have been a phone book, you know, like there was, it was so much noise, so much shit. And then the internet kicks in a couple of years later and that just makes it even crazier. And so, yeah, the time is completely, that kind of evolution of music completely radically different now, like, it has been for a long time. It's just, it's a gone concept that, that stuff can organically move along with a smaller group of people. You know, I don't mean from an elitist standpoint, I mean like literally from a, just the way the world works, everything is just out and there's tons of it and it's constantly coming. And, you know, it's a very different, you know, landscape. Yeah. And then also the role of actual physical space where uh, I think it's just hard to imagine the physical space having the same uh, uh, playing the same role now because yeah. everything is kind of virtual first and yes. foremost. Uh, yeah. Yeah. That's, that's very different. And then, and so the, I mean, it's a cliche, but it's so true is like the sense of community and, and whatnot is so important when you're, especially when you're like a naive musician, quote unquote, artist, whatever, and you get buttressed by the people around you. I mean, the mutants grew out of um, uh, uh, CCA, which was CCAC and the and SFAI and Monopause grew up out of the Heinz scene and our friends on 7th Street. And that's all physical proximity and kind of, as you say, sort of like um, centering around one or two spots you know where people physically go um i mean starting with spock morgan all the way through it's like you know the digital the, the the digital meeting rooms serve the same purpose i think on a certain level but it is a little different when it's like the bands are swapping members and stuff because you're all in a you're physically in the same place and you are truly influencing each other as opposed to with the digital remove influencing each other so yeah it's very different and then for San Francisco, that has uh, two different impacts. I mean, there's one impact on just the way the music is made and distributed, but there's also the fact that that was the that became the you know the capital of Silicon Valley, or at least the hmm. yeah. I mean, what what was what was Greg Freeman's Lowdown Studios in Dogpatch, where so many great records were made, is now like 
it's the ballpark and condos and i mean yeah of course it's like it's a total fucking miracle that artist television access ata is still open and it's still there you know it's incredible it's fantastic but they're a nonprofit and they can pull it off same as the roxy is also a nonprofit. but otherwise everything's gone you know so yeah yeah, it's all fucking gone i this is a a little digression but my friend dale in mx80 has spent most of his adult life until he retired working in movie theaters and we realized that as of you know probably a month or so there's not going to be a single movie theater left in the city of berkeley zero because the ua is closing and the elmwood's going to close and those are the two last ones and people just don't i don't th- i think that people are going to forget the level of community and togetherness it even just comes from a movie theater let alone a performance space you know um and the idea of seeing a movie communally it's not like it's going to die there's always going to be some you know places for movies but yeah this was a shocking and depressing piece of reality that you know the city where i grew up is going to have zero movie theaters after having 22 it's like whoa mentioned in the email that the mutants uh, it was kind of a, a teenage dream how, how old were you when you first saw them or, or were aware of their music? oh well they didn't play for 18 years so i was i just missed them i mean i could have seen them at the on broadway but i didn't i don't think i found their record for another year or two so mid to late 80s i found the fun terminal record in the store and got into them and yeah i was i was obsessed with them for 15 whatever years they did one reunion in 89 at the uh uh DNA Lounge, which for some dumb reason I didn't go to. I remember when it happened and I just didn't go like a dumb shit. Um, side dig- digression, I also remember when Snakefinger played at the Berkeley Square in 1987 with his band, with the Vestal Virgins. I was a huge Snakefinger Residence fan. And I thought, nah, I think I'm going to go just get stoned and eat pizza up on, you know, on Grizzly Peak, which I did. And then he died, you know. Um, anyway, uh, uh uh sorry what was the original reason why <laughs> yeah the, with the, the mutants so you, right. you actually came right. in through through the fun terminal okay interesting. absolutely uh, absolutely and then and then uh and and, and louder faster shorter the movie it followed not long okay. after that so we're talking mid mid 80s so they were done and then in 89 they did one show then they didn't play for 16 years i think so i saw them for the first time in 05 or 06 when they had just started doing shows again uh at the denord and around that time and i already knew jim from mx80 o type grifters bunch of bands he was in the latter version of the mutants he was in the when the when the mutants splintered in 84 3 and uh john brendan dave left and the singers stayed and you know there they got a whole new instrument lineup and jim was in that band the only person who stayed constant was paul on bass um, so I already knew Jim, knew that he was in the mutants. He was in the reunion version of the mutants in 06. Um, and I was starting to play music with Jim as I think in 97 or something. So there were already these weird interlocking things. Jim introduced me to Dave, the drummer of the mutants. And we started a band together, which only ever played out once. It was basically just a recording project and a jamming part called the Bisonics. And that was me, Jim and Dave. 
And somewhere in there, Paul announced he was leaving the mutants. So this is about 10 years ago. And Dave's like, I think you should join the mutants. And I'm like, oh, come on, give me a break. I can never do that. And I did. So that's, and then Paul died a couple of years after that. He didn't, he, he left before he died. Um, so yeah, I mean, I was totally into them, totally thrilled. And you know, sometimes, I don't know if Mia told you this, but sometimes when, when Mia and I are, are, are rehearsing with the mutants, you know, we just like look across the room and we just smile at each other. Like, can you fucking believe this is happening? We still have the same, you know, even though I've been friends with them forever, since long before I was in the band, you know, I just, I, there's something about playing that in that band that is, that is just like, it's like a dream come true. It's fucking great. Yeah. I think the, the new CD, um, just as a listening experience, I think it's really well sequenced and, um, Good. and then, but as Thank far you. as their songwriting goes, they would have been the most kind of traditional, um, of those Mabuhay era bands as far as, um, maybe traditional isn't the right word I, I know where you're going with this there's like there's rock and yeah. roll there's rock and roll roots in their music yeah. I mean yeah. Brendan some of the songs we do are just straight up Rolling Stones cops you know they're just they're there's one it's not on the record uh I don't think um twit that is just just straight up stonesy vibe just with the tempo a little bit up absolutely but you could say the same for crime to a certain extent. You could say the same for, you know, a couple of other bands that sort of had a rock and roll kind of like, you know what I mean? It right. was, it, yeah. Yeah. Although with crime, you would have this sort of, uh, you know, no pun intended, but repulsive kind of tones and, and off-putting like, <laughs> scraping guitar tones that would, right, 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 or, right. or the drums going all over the place that would keep it from, from, from kind of sounding like that but it's kind of uh that's kind of what uh chris d said in his review it's like you you might he, i guess he's talking to a more of an la audience you might think that it was some that it was more along the lines of a novelty based on what you might know about seeing a photo of the band or something but when you get right down to it it's just really good songs and, and it does have more of, yeah. a, of a of a timeless quality whereas if it comes out if it came out in 1980 it could have been looked at as eh, you know we're onto hardcore or something yeah or, or we're onto something so it, it's it hasn't really um dated uh the way that's that, that certain things might have you know, no i think the stuff is very very fresh i mean i was i was super confident when the label approached us about doing something they were originally talking about doing fun terminal and i'm like you know what there's already been a reissue of fun terminal i am sitting on all these tapes and they wrote so many songs that weren't even recorded let's just let's start from scratch and make a new record and i'm so glad we did because the, re the response seems to be pretty universal that it was kind of like the missing link of, the, of mutants recordings i mean it is you know and there's more there's still quite a bit more <laughs> you know it couldn't do quite a whole nother volume but we can come pretty close okay because they yeah, wrote a or, lot or, of songs they wrote a lot of songs i think there's like 50 songs in the canon or something i think that's the number it's a 50 ish you know in five okay. years i would hear similar things from the sleepers and there was a quote from jello biafra in the um uh the the reissue that came out in the 90s or compilation that said like he saw entire sets come and go uh, like of, of mm -hmm. songs and and they for their own reasons didn't didn't get them all recorded and really they I've talked to certainly Michael and then Paul Draper and there just isn't much left uh, mm -hmm. there, there isn't really anything left and so it's kind of you know what you get is what you get are, are there are you I don't know if you would be able to to talk about this but are, are, are do you have any other projects that are 
involved involving that particular era that early that late 70s early 80s oh i've signed an nda will and i'm afraid i can't no um um well i will tell you this i don't think this is not a secret is that i have transferred every single note that was ever recorded and that's almost all of their shows of um uh oh my god the screamers and wow. uh, and all that's ever come out is the, it really is the four song uh, EP, the demo uh, on Superior Viaduct. I mean, there's been compilations and things, but I mean, there's a chance for like a whole nother incredible Screamers release if they wanted to do it, if everybody agreed. And I just, you know, all those tapes are just sitting on my computer. I transferred okay. every note, you know, stuff that they didn't even know they still had, you know, the KK kept a pretty good collection of tape. Um, and and Devo too. I mean, I can tell you this is. Oh, no, we can put this on the record. Is that there is a archival release of Devo material coming out, which the world has never heard. It hasn't been announced yet, though. Um, so I can't get into too much specifics, but it's enormous. It's going to be like a three-record set of mostly unreleased Devo songs that I've tra- that I found and transferred. So, but from San Francisco, I mean. Yeah, as I said, there's a handful of mutants things, but I don't have any other projects in the pipeline with with the other bands. Um, you know, I wanted to do more with the rest, but there's no, there's just, it's like there's no, there's nothing. There's there's nothing in terms of film. A lot was a lot is missing. Um, a couple negatives are missing. Uh, I tried to do man. I still have the copy of it, but uh, Man in the Dark Sedan, the the Residence Snake Finger video. It's basically Snake Finger. That film negative is missing. I only have a dupe, um, but like shit just goes missing. I mean, whip it. You know, one of the most famous videos of all time, the negative is lost. You know, I searched everywhere in their archive and it's lost. It's like Warner Brothers probably was had access to it and they just never returned it or something. You know, like I have a photochemical copy that's pretty good, but, you know, so I, yeah, but nothing else. I unless I'm forgetting something. Yeah, no, I remember the, um, the in eyes, ears, and throats. Uh, I think Def Punk and in the red were at the beginning, and then it segues into these color videos. And uh, as someone who first experienced, uh, you know, music videos, let's say, oh, I remember we had HBO and had a 1982 video jukebox, so like Total Eclipse of the Heart, and then we got an MTV. And I think a lot of us and let's say my age group who, who were coming along then didn't realize that, you know, first of all, bands had been making videos, but they were something that was more, um, I mean, you had Bruce Connor working with, with Devo. And then yeah. I don't know much about him, but Graham Whiffler, is that? Yeah. He did all those residence films. Yeah. And he, sat, he sat with me and, and color corrected all of the new restorations. So they are very much the way he wanted them. Okay, and I can't remember if the Tuxedo Moon Jinx video is on that compilation. I don't think, but he did that video as well, right? Yes, it's great. I actually have the negative of that, the original negative sitting in my back room right now, just waiting to be restored. Um, it's it's on loan from the PFA, and I just haven't raised the money to do it. But yeah, he really, want, he really wants that done, too. He's like, that's, to him, that's like the missing one, and it's great, but uh, yeah. Yeah, that's, that's a great video, and... Uh, that was another dimension. I mean, certainly not every band was 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 doing videos like that. But on, but on the other hand, you realize it's almost like another one of these alternate alternate pathways that things could have gone. It's like you have this medium music video, 
And with a band like Devo, they're doing things with it that just go over and above the music. I mean, it really changes the way for me, like you would perceive the music. You see this concept. Absolutely. But they always imagined themselves as a multimedia group. They didn't imagine themselves as a band. They're on record saying, we want to be filmmakers. We want to be on TV. We want to do everything. Yeah. Right, right. And so that would, and that would be true of the residents as well um, whether or not they proclaimed it and then um, that is another tradition that is not um, neither one of I mean Devo is not San Francisco but that tradition is not exclusive to San Francisco but that's another thread that um, winds its way through with with say Carolina oh god yeah the visual aspect and then I hope history doesn't forget them I hope they get I hope they they definitely feature heavily in in this book. Uh, there's several chapters. Uh, I mean, you were here, so you remember. I mean, they you know they they're sort of like you know they were sort of like the superstars in a way. I mean, they were sort of like to me anyway. To a lot of they they were just held up in another place, you know, just because of what they accomplished. I didn't see them in the the prime era. I mean, in the era oh, okay. of the late eighties, early nineties. So I, I was, and people would always tell me you, you didn't see them back when. And Oh, bullshit. They were just, they were the same. They've all, I mean, they got a little bit more tight as a band, you know, because Grux would get people in who would play a little better, but nah, fuck. I mean, I saw them at Gilman in 87 and it was incredible. And that's like, I've never seen anything like this. And I felt the same way when I saw them whenever the last time was, you know? So yeah. Yeah, I, I I saw the Thinking Fellers open for Negative Land in '87 at at Gilman. You know, one of their first shows. Right. You know that that is that's actually that's how the Thinking Fellers uh, enter the the narrative uh, with with the Gilman Street and because uh, I had no clue about that until you to rehearse um, there. Yeah. Right. Exactly. And so that um uh, it was um what's his name uh, Seymour Glass. Yeah. However, however one knows him who uh, told me some of that. And that, that's another part of, that's another part of the East Bay stuff that kind of uh, uh, works its way into this, because you definitely, uh, let's say if you, <laughs> my age, I would hear about Gilman street and in the context of, you know, this kind of mall punk uh, didn't realize. And, and uh, again, I'll call him Seymour cause I don't know him personally. He was telling me about how there was Friday night experimental, more the experimental mm-hmm. night and Saturday night. So Friday night you would have at Gilman street, the likes of, Negative Land and Thinking Fellers. Um, who else might have been? I'm not sure. Oh, there were the, the, the Japanese bands played there, Ruins and um, Okay, Fushitsucha, and uh, yeah, his, his show was two minutes long. That was unbelievable. He screamed into this weird ball-like microphone for two minutes, and he threw it down, and that was that was it. <laughs> it was so awesome. That was was that was that Masana? Masana? I was Masana. It was Masana. Yeah. Right, okay. Because yeah. I've heard about that show yeah. from other other people and. Yeah. Um, you know about you know about the uh, the the feeders show with the dead dog. You know about this. I've heard about that. I think. Yeah, I was at that uh, show. Those uh, okay. there are certain things that just I will never unsee. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm not sure if this is accurate or not, because this is just my own my own perspective getting out there. I didn't have the I came out there with this idea of things like Amarillo Records and stuff like that it, as like what I thought was going to be like happening. It just cracks me up. Like the idea that, that anybody would have that label in their head and be like, that's where I'm going. 
Exactly, exactly. That's kind of where the whole thing started for me. And, awesome. you know, yeah. that, um, that was defunct in the sense, I mean, the label was defunct and that, that orbit of bands didn't really exist. And it took me a while through just meeting people because I didn't know anybody uh, to start seeing, uh, finding places to go. And that, I think the very first place I saw kind of an underground show uh, was the Clit Stop. Uh, oh, fuck, I love that place. Yeah. Another, another uh, 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 fire trap. Yeah. 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 And, and then I think that from the most interesting era in terms for me, in terms of uh, when I was physically out there was when it was really undefined, like 2000, 2001, 2002, I didn't know how other people knew each other. And it seemed like a lot of people were meeting each other. Um, mm -hmm. But I'm for, uh, for the first time and, but it seemed to me to have almost no continuity with what I had been interested in before. Hmm. And then later I came across, you know, when the Sun City Girls came and, and I, I would learn about you all or started, uh, there was a Porest album in 2002. Oh. And, I, and I thought, this relates more to the stuff that I was interested in before. And mm -hmm. um, in terms of, it's, I don't know, these words are tricky, but concept, uh, idea, multimedia ideas that are not, you're not going mm -hmm. to necessarily. Theatrical. Yeah, theatrical. And, and there was one of the monopause articles that, you know, the word performance came up. And, and that's certainly a, a thread in the, the early uh, punk era. It's bands like Tuxedo Moon or, um, you know. Mutants. Uh, Mutants. Okay, that's true. That's true. Yeah, yeah. mutants were very and, theatrical. Uh, yeah. 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 How how would you um, since you were actually there the whole time? Did the early two thousand say after the dot com bust kind of did things seem revitalized to you or? Yeah. Oh, for sure. Oh, absolutely. I I I mean that was, yeah. I mean, crack. We are rock. They were just total fucking stars pink and brown before um what's his name hit so big um you know mm -hmm. what i'm talking about uh you know the ocs yeah. why am i space yeah. nice guy why am i space john dwyer john dwyer thank you but i mean all leading up to that and and into that i think that was a really super fertile period absolutely and there were a lot of terrific incestuous shit with everybody in other bands and um oh yeah i think that was great and also because suddenly the rents were affordable again, you know, for a short time. And I mean, um, crack lived in a, uh, not the whole band, but, but, um, lived in, uh, a storefront next to this, like it was behind a bike repair shop on, uh, Valencia or Mich uh, mission. Oh, okay. Right. Right. Yeah. Okay. I remember that. And there, they also had a storefront space near 16th and mission or, or Eric Bauer, maybe. No, that's what I'm talking um, about. It's Eric Bauer space. Oh, yeah. that's right. Okay. And that okay. place, that place, the reason why they got that space was, and it was a huge, fantastic space, and it was completely outfitted with with Ethernet everywhere, so they could like enter, you know, because it was one of these ridiculous dot com bad idea businesses. It was online dry cleaning, which at the time was like the biggest laugh of all time, and it failed, and they got that space for nothing for a couple of years. Yeah, so that was, I mean, there were a lot of terrific results of the dot-com bust, you know, <laughs> no question. Um, it made some right. of Monopause's comedy uh, immediately dated, but, uh, you know, because we were making jokes about cell phones as, you know, as, as the status symbol and shit, and, you know, that that disappeared. Um, I mean, the White Ring, which was our, uh, our, our you know, fundamentalist Christian uh, Gulf War veteran band, our big show uh, was on the first anniversary of September 11th. So it was September 11th, 2002. 
and the bust, the dot-com bust had happened, but there were still these like crazy money trickles. And so we were this very clever poet who somehow managed to connive this gallery into letting him book shows there, put us in there. It was called the Blue Room Gallery on Mission. And I mean, there were these ghastly sculptures uh, like, uh, you know, horses made of um, brass or something. And they were like $25,000. I mean, it was like the worst yeah. fucking art for, for crazy rich people. And the White Ring show was in there, you know, surrounded by this horrific art that's like a leftover from the crazy dot com, you know, nuttiness. So it all it did make for some good creative fodder to have that giant sucking sound, as uh, Ross Perot would say, the the, the money all, you know, going away. <laughs> okay, and I'll admit that I didn't quite always. I would hear things about like uh, like the show that you all did the. Um... I might be mixing two of them together because I wasn't there at this one, but the one with the dialogue, the um, stage banter that was pre-recorded. Pre-recorded? That might have been with the Sun City Girls or I can't remember, or, or Avico. I don't know. We did so many shows at the bottom of the hill. It was the bottom of the hill, yeah. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. And and it was... That was fun. That was a, something that came through. Again, I don't, I don't mean to say that this was invented in San Francisco, but that idea of you know, every show is, we're going to do this this time. And this it's next a, time you might event. see something completely different. Yeah. It's, yeah, an, it's event. an event. Yeah. It's a performance. Yeah. We tried not to repeat ourselves if possible, even though we had songs that we would repeat. Um, yeah. We just pushed ourselves to come up with some new prank shtick, you know, thing. I mean, we were, I, I, I think of us as sort of like situationist rock, you know, I mean, it was, it was, it was definitely, that's why we were such a good, simpatico with the sun city girls on a certain level because they had a much darker i think um way of going about it but it was the same idea it's like you're going to do a three-night stand of shows and you're going to basically give people three different bands is what they would do and right i mean it's very yeah it's very inspiring it, it all it, and we all definitely swim in that same ocean but i remember being really disappointed by the residents at some point when i felt like suddenly what they were doing felt like shtick instead of like a really creative performance you know it was like they homer broke the fourth wall and started addressing the audience and i just thought like no wait a minute that's not you know what do you that's not the residence you know i had a kind of like a hardcore feeling about it uh, i never quite got over that and that was a long time ago that was like i don't know early 2000s i think or even before yeah. i don't know it's a high standard. I mean, it, as a, um, well, a fan or observer, or an, um, listener, um, I try to keep that in mind that, you know, what, uh, any band that's going to hold themselves to that standard, I mean, for one thing, there's a lot that has to go into it to, to you know, it's, it's not as, it's not like you learn a set and then you just roll off, roll out right. that set every time. And then the other thing is it, it makes it uh, from a, from a success perspective, it's going to make things harder because anybody who just started to catch up with what you were doing before is now yeah. going to be, uh, but, but that, but then that ideal of, of, of doing that is, is sort of um, kind of what I was, was chasing after and sort of um, would always find so interesting and, and how the, the people themselves would um, manage to navigate real life by, while doing that. It takes a toll and, and uh, it always requires, 
for me, it's not, I feel like, oh, it's not fair to just say, why did they start doing this? You know, they, they started, uh, it turned into stick at this point, or, or they sold out. And it's like, well, you just realize how much of a hmm, struggle maybe, or, or it's an uphill, it's an uphill climb to, to, to do those kinds of things. And sometimes you should just, you should just stop. I mean, sometimes you should stop back off re re, you know, I mean, yeah, that's just, that that's another valid. Yeah. A lot of people. That has to ha- I think that has to happen sometimes. Yeah. I mean, I'm not saying that I've ever done that, <laughs> but uh, but I wish I had a couple times. I mean, I, I certainly felt that way with Negative Land, and 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 uh, but with yeah with Monopause, we just we morphed into Nungpak and then sort of stayed that way. We you know there wasn't a lot of Monopause after that, and so that gave us. But we pushed we pushed really hard on that too. We we were constantly trying to come up with new tunes. We were we had our own theatrical fucked up shit at each one of those shows too. So it was the same, you know, just trying not to be too repetitive. Um, but that 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 show that band allowed us to kind of like play the hits. Like we we knew it with the songs were actually remembered as opposed to with monopause where nobody remembers the songs. It's um, you know it's it was it gave us a different platform, you know. Yeah, I, I saw quite a few of those shows, and really, that was. I remember, I didn't ever make this proclamation, but there was a brief period where I was, I was, I was, you know, thinking best band in San Francisco, and I liked the idea of, you know, somebody said, "Wait a second, you're going to say that a band that's doing covers of Southeast Asian <laughs> pop songs from cassettes is the best band?" I don't exactly know what my even argument would have been, but uh, I, I like the idea that, yeah, it's this really specific thing, and yeah. um, th- that you would. Uh, like you know, I talk way more than some people would probably think I should about the Popo pies, but you know, uh, here's this <laughs> thing that sounds like sounds like this absurd gimmick that okay, you know, thirty seconds is enough, but then uh, you do more with it, and then it, it brings out more more depth. And so a lot of these, uh, so much of what's in the book, not the whole thing, because you do have you do have bands that that play you know play songs and and, and have regular sets, but a lot of it is is this stuff that is playing around with the very idea of, of what it is to be in a band or to Absolutely. have an audience. And that's, uh, the, that, well, that's the most important thing for me is to constantly be questioning that, you know, even with the mutants. I mean, I'm trying to subvert it somehow and just give myself some kicks to, you know, I mean, the last couple of shows I've performed with a, uh, uh, oops, a, a mosquito net over my head, like, and it's just the most bizarre, you know, I, I'm, You know, I'd rather do that than just stand there, you know, uh, yeah, it's just, it, it, it's part of the, I'm, that's my, that's where I'm going to want to be pushing it. You know, the only time I get to not do that and just basically play in a band band is uh, with Malcolm Mooney and we rarely, rarely ever play, unfortunately, but um, that's, that's the closest I get to, you know, that sort of thing. <clears throat> it's straight. It's basically straight, you know. I feel like something that would have been challenging for say negative land would be that a lot of the voice of that kind of the satirical elements that would go along with it almost mm-hmm. became like they, there's a, there will be satire and, and uh, that is um, effective and then it gets co-opted. Well, yeah, and I mean, I, I think I, to me, I, I lost a lot of interest in doing Negative Land because I felt like, I mean, this is just me speaking, but I felt like it's just every, 
it cutting up shit and recontextualizing and also um uh, archly parodying something or ironically parodying something is the mode of communication in so much like social media pop culture whatever i mean everybody is doing it and and i didn't feel like i didn't feel like negative land had very much to say anymore like we were just a uh, 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 swimming along in a in a sort of you know sea of so much else you know that what don called culture jamming sure we were pretty early on in making it i mean i would say we loosely because i wasn't in the band then but i mean the band was very i think instrumental in uh dare i say popularizing a certain kind of cut up satire or a certain kind of uh, pop culture blenderizing culture jamming whatever you want to call it because of how much college uh, airplay the band got you know and, and just how there weren't a lot of fish in the sea again back to our discussion about how everything the landscape has changed and so i think i felt like up to about 2000 when we did the true false tour i felt like we were still participating in that and really contributing something to that but i don't know it started to feel like I, I, that's not true. I feel really, I'm really proud of, of what followed too. I'm really proud of um, It's All in Your Head, the last big record that we did, which is all about God. And we toured and made people wear blindfolds in the audience. We handed out blindfolds so that they couldn't see because the idea was it was a radio show. So you're actually going to sit in an audience with a fucking blindfold on. And a lot of people did it, you know. Um, I was very proud of that whole business. But, but, everyone is that is the mode of communication now i mean it's the it's the billboards you see for products there it's it's all the same sort of uh uh ironic satire aesthetic and i i don't i just lost interest you know i lost interest i'd rather try to be subverting the the, the, the concepts from in some other way it's just it's too much noise there's just it's everywhere you know yeah, that that gets back to what I was 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 uh, groping at earlier, as far as the different challenges that you, you can be successful, even if it's not a big time commercial success, but artistically successful. And then the the um, the platform underneath you moves, or, or you know the, the things that were. Uh, yeah, I think Negative Land is one good example. I also think you know Amarillo Records. I mean that that was huge for uh, when I came across that and and uh, you know breakfast without meat and and some of these other things it was like wow you mm -hmm. have, you have uh that was my first exposure to something that felt like i it really resonated with something that i had never seen expressed yeah yeah sure. before and, and then um i mean it pains me to say this but um there are whole spaces like i'm not really part of them but i look at them and it's like wow this has really become absorbed into um, it's it's not exactly the same aesthetic as the negative land, but kind of every, meta blurring the lines between. Right, 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 right. I right. don't know. It's it would be tough in any case because the, these are very like all these people who are challenging the way of like how music or a band or an artist is perceived, subverting these things. Those types of subversion become the norm and then what we're there yeah and, yeah and, and but that's also um, we have to we have to give a lot of you know leeway to to culture and that that sort of culture having it become the norm means it like well you, we won 
know, I mean, you know, like, okay. So we won. Everything is every, this has meaning for a greater number of people doing this. This is like the way culture communicates with each other now. And so that, I guess that's great, actually, you know, that's, that's, that's just great. It just, it pushes you harder to do something more uh, off the wall, you know, it pushes you harder to do something that, I mean, like, I don't like monopause was already struggling with those sorts of things when we were doing the work we were doing. I mean, you know, when we came up with the lip sync show idea, I feel pretty confident nobody else had done quite that, you know, I feel pretty confident that that was something that we pulled off that that uh, that that, you know, felt really original, you know, like to to pretend we were talking on stage, but we actually weren't. It was all pre-recorded, and then and then to trip the audience up at some point on purpose by screwing it up, you know, so that so that the the wall is broken and that you see that it's not actually happening. I mean, that was a big part of what we did, and and I think there will always be room for somebody to to do that, even when uh, this kind of conceptual thinking and art is so mainstream. I think there's, I still love it when seeing things that are done well i mean the yes men when they pull up pull off another incredible prank it's like wow that's genius what you just convinced people or or i mean just stupid fucking elon fucking fascist musk buying twitter and then changing the authenticity authenticating process so that somebody could come up with a fake account and say hi we're eli Lilly, and insulin is free you know i mean great even though that's not like a new idea to impersonate a company and do that, it still has the same power. You know, it's like, it's still going to be believed for a, for a few minutes, you know? And, and so there's, I have no problem with that being mainstreamed in a sense, if the, if it works, you know? Um, yeah. I mean, Devo was preaching de-evolution and most of what they have said is comes has come true. You know, it's just like de-evolution is clearly very real uh, in all kinds of ways. You know, I don't think we're necessarily gonna. You know, we didn't come from a line of brain-eating apes necessarily, but I mean, there's 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 a lot of truth there. You know, so. Okay. Yeah, I was also thinking when you said we won. Sometimes there could be a sense of, uh oh, we won. Now what? Or this is oh winning. sure. <laughs> I mean, I'm being, I'm being a little facetious. Yeah. Well, I mean, yes. Yeah. Uh, you know what? What exactly? You know, is behind door number three something you really want to take home? You know, once you buy a prize, it's yours to keep. You know, like, uh, yeah, I, I, I yeah. characterizations, but not to the point of poodles. In other words, we can go 